Welcome to The Raw Nerve, the official podcast of MS Australia, a conversation space for all things multiple sclerosis. Join us for news and views on the latest research, treatments and advocacy efforts, as well as candid and informative interviews with our community, those living with MS and their families and carers, together with leading clinicians, researchers and advocates. Welcome to The Raw Nerve. I'm Rowan Greenland, the CEO at MS Australia and co-host of this podcast. Today, we're taking a deep dive into a new report commissioned by MS Australia prepared by the Menzies Institute for Medical Research in Hobart that reveals a disturbing spike in the prevalence of MS in Australia. And to discuss this report, uh, we have two authors, eminent health economist Professor Andrew Palmer and a global authority on MS, highly respected researcher and neurologist Professor Bruce Taylor. Also joining us is a tireless advocate for MS, uh, the uh, president of MS Australia, uh, and, and a person living with MS, Associate Professor Des Graham. So first, we're going to go to Andrew. Andrew, what does this report show? What's new in the numbers of people in Australia living with MS? So we looked at a couple of things in this report. The first one is the number of people, uh, otherwise known as the prevalence of people with living with MS in Australia in 2021. And what we found is there are about 33,000 or just over 33,000 people living with MS in Australia in 2021. This, this is alarming because it's an increase of more than, more than 7,000 people, nearly 8,000 people from our last estimate four years ago in 2017. Um, and this uh, number, this increase seems to be accelerating over time. Um, the other also, thing that we looked at... Yep, I was going to ask you this one. What about the costs? What, what does this mean for the, 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 the costs associated with MS in this country? So the other thing we looked at in the report was the, uh, the, the total cost to Australia or in Australia um, associated with people with MS. Um, and what we've seen is an increase from $1.75 billion from uh, 2017 increasing now to over 33, uh, sorry, over $2.5 billion for the total uh, cost of MS in Australia. That's and, an and increase more than 30%. That, that's a huge spike. Uh, where are those increases felt? I mean, I understand that the report actually shows a significant out-of-pocket expenses for people living with MS, but also there's a big cost to government as well, the direct healthcare costs. Yeah, so the costs... I mean, they've increased mainly because of the, num the number of people have increased. The number of people with MS have increased over that time period. Of course, there's also uh, inflationary pressures that have caused that uh, increase in costs. Uh, where we're seeing these changes in costs or the big drivers in the costs are the direct costs of uh, treating MS, so costs of going to hospital, costs of medication, costs of going to the doctor, all those things that uh, the government has to pay for. Um, on the other hand, we've also seen changes in indirect costs. So that's that cost due to lost productivity. It could be due to early retirement or decreases in your um, job status or not being as productive at work when you're actually at work because of illness or because you're absent from work, so because you're sick. Um, so on one hand, what we've noticed is that the cost, the direct costs have increased. That's that cost driven mainly by the cost of medications used to treat MS, so the really good medications. 
They're really good medications these days to, to manage MS and stop and slow the progression of MS. They do cost uh, the government and, and to a certain extent patients something, but yeah, the government reimburses most of those costs, which is great. Um, so those costs have increased over time, but there's been a decrease in the indirect costs, so those costs due to lost productivity. So what we're thinking is that by, by treating people better um, with these disease-modifying therapies that, that decrease the rate of progression of disability, we're actually able to keep people longer in the workforce um, and help keep them more productive while they're at work. A small silver lining. Bruce, uh, you've done a lot of interviews over the last uh, uh, 24 hours or so. And the big question that's being put to you is why? Why are we seeing this dramatic spike in prevalence in MS in Australia? Well, there are a number of factors that are potentially involved in this. And what we have to say is that um, the, the actual truth cause is not known because we have to, it's hard to um, specifically say that this is caused by such and such. But what we can hypothesize and actually um, support by research is that there's been changes in uh, global or behaviors in Australia and in lifestyle factors over the last 20 years, which are largely or likely to largely drive these associations. <clears throat> we know that the causation of MS is complex. There's no single cause for MS. We know that it has just got to do with genetics, which are not going to change over time, food, you know, basically who you are. Where you live is important. The further you live away from the equator, the greater risk of getting MS is. And that's likely due to an environmental factor, which is um, most likely um, you, you've got ultraviolet radiation exposure and vitamin subsequently vitamin D. The other factors that are associated with risk of MS are smoking, um, adolescent obesity, and also the Epstein-Barr virus. Now, we're not likely to see changes in the um, impact of Epstein-Barr virus because you know, it's already well-established and ubiquitous in our community. But we are seeing to, uh, and, and the final factor, which is really important, is as MS is largely or predominantly a disease of uh, women or females, the, the reproductive um, habits or behaviours of people or Australian women have also changed dramatically over the last 30 years. So if you take those factors together, obesity has dramatically increased in Australia. And this the increase in obesity directly now mimics uh, mirrors the increase in, in MS prevalence. It is likely that adolescent obesity is one of the uh, increasing adolescent obesity is one of the direct drivers. Smoking in women, um, although it never reached the heights of smoking in men, the um, peak in you know, female female smoking was later than in men, and the rate of fall has been less than the uh, seen uh, male rates of smoking. So smoking is likely to contribute. The other things are that. Uh, women in Australia are having their children later and are having less children. We know that for every pregnancy the person, uh, female has, they've reduced their risk of getting MS by about 25%. So if you um, see that people are now having an average, the first child at around 30 rather than 24, and they're having, instead of having three or to five children as they did in the 50s, 60s, they are having one or two children. That is a dramatic effect in, on the potential risk of MS. The final important thing is that uh, we've had a significant change in our sun behavior practice over the last 30 years because of the decreasing risk of uh, uh, the risk of getting melanoma and skin cancer. We've had a very successful slip, slop, slap program, and this has been reflected 
in a decreasing rate of um, skin cancer, but there's still a major problem. But it's also usually associated with an increased risk of getting um, conditions such as MS, as we know that reduced sun exposure is one of the risk factors for getting MS. And we know that just simply replacing vitamin D, which is a direct consequence of sunlight exposure, is probably not the answer. So the, so if we look at those five factors together, we know we can potentially explain this increasing risk. And the other important thing about these things is many of these are modifiable. There's things we can do to change this risk. Um, the spike we've seen in MS cases in Australia is not unique to Australia. Um, it matches a couple of studies, I think, that have been done in Australia by yourself in the Greater Hobart area and Newcastle. But I understand there are other countries around the world which are also seeing similar spikes. So, so what's what's happening there? Is it the same issues that are happening here? If you look, if you look at a map of the world and look at obesity rates, and then compare that to areas where the uh, on changes in obesity rates, and compare that to the areas where you're getting increasing MS prevalence or reported increased MS prevalence. They match very closely. The United States is the classical example. The Middle East, particularly countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, where obesity and other countries such as Mexico, and in Europe, the, every prevalence study of MS we see where there's repeated measures shows an increase. And so MS is increasing worldwide, and the Atlas of MS has shown that this is happening worldwide. And it's can't be um, local factors that are important. It has to be factors that are acting at the population level. And obesity is one of those. Smoking is one of those. Um, reduced sun exposure is another one of those. And also, again, globally, the change of the way uh, of reproductive behaviours in women. So all these factors are not exclusive to Australia. They are worldwide. Des, for, for MS Australia... The sharp increase in prevalence has really brought into focus our advocacy campaign. What are we advocating for and uh, um, what can government in particular do to work with us uh, to, to address this uh, uh, um, uh, quite alarming increase in prevalence of MS? Well, congratulations to the and, and thank you to the uh, Menzies for their report. I think the, the report demonstrates um, what we've known for some time um, that it demands uh, further investment into research and into supporting people living with MS. I think um, clearly with the burden of cost around $2.5 billion, it is ridiculous to think that uh, the government will not engage with MS Australia to support a research, uh, further research into MS. We look, particularly looking, we're looking for the cure, obviously, that's the golden board. But we also want to recognise that we can improve the quality of life for people uh, through the National Disability Insurance Scheme uh, and in supporting them in their activities of daily living. The, the critical point, I guess, for government is fund us for the research, but also recognise through the NDIS that only one third of people with MS actually access the uh, National Disability Insurance Scheme. And so I actually think uh, the numbers that this report has shown us in terms of cost of out-of-pocket for people is actually underreported because there are a number uh, of uh, you know well-documented cases 
where people just simply can't not get access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme because they've got uh, 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 blockages in, in the process. They don't have good advocates. And as a result, they end up um, supporting themselves or their carers support them. So I think, in summary, the, the report demands attention uh, and the government really now needs to partner with research institutes. It needs to partner clearly with MS Australia as the, the sort of iconic and well-respected institution that it is. And it also needs to progress uh, the investigation or the review of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Uh, and, you know, it seems... As I, as I said, it seems uh, difficult to understand why, with the numbers that are outlined in this report, the government will not pay, pay it some attention. Thanks, Des. Another question for Andrew. Andrew, the um, I was uh, really intrigued by the report uh, it, for a number of reasons, but but you know when we talk about uh, two point five billion or two point four four nine billion, I think it was. The, the you know that's a tremendous cost to government but you have said in that report that that's a conservative figure and probably an underestimate yes yeah, so we we did inflate our figures the cost figures per person from 2017 uh, estimates that we made um, so we use a very conservative inflation rate that may even be higher what we're doing in the, at the moment is in the process of redoing the whole survey from scratch. So later in this year, we'll be sending out surveys to several thousand people who have MS and we'll be asking them precisely what are their costs again at this point in time. So you, while you think that's likely to be a much larger number once that no, more detailed will, analysis yeah. is done? Yes. And, and you're going to do a typical politician type trick here and you ask me that question and answer a question that I want to answer. Um, what we also noticed is that, uh, as we know, that MS is a progressive disease. So you know, it can start off often with no disability and go through mild to moderate and then you know, severe disability over the course of time. And those rates depend on the type of MS and, and yeah, the treatment that people are receiving. Um, what we discovered was that people with no disability have much lower costs than people who progress on to have mild, moderate and severe disability. So people with MS who have no disability have annual total costs of about 33000 per year. Um, people with mild disability, that increases to around $60,000 per year per person. If you have moderate disability, it goes up to about 83000 per year. And if you have severe disability, which essentially means you know, the person is in, in a wheelchair, has severe you know, problems walking, that goes up to about 123000 per person per year. So anything, any kind of interventions or treatments or management programs that can uh, stop people from that progression of disability has the potential to have a huge impact on the, on the costs of right. MS. Right. Ron, and can, also, I just add, can I just add in course. there? I, I mean, the, the, uh, the US have a, uh, a pathways to cure um, uh, report and I think it's globally recognised that as Andrew is pointing out primary intervention is a critical primary intervention, early intervention is critical in terms of not only saving an enormous uh, dollar cost 
but it's critically important in terms of uh, allowing people to live as far as possible our normal activities of daily living life. And so, um, you know, we, we can't just measure this in dollars, as is important as it is, but in, in terms of the quality of life for, for people. And I think, it, again, um, you know, I, I think the... Recently, we, we gave an award, in fact, that Bruce and, uh, attended to a, a lady down in Tasmania um, who I'll call uh, Jilly, and she had a wheelchair, and uh, she was quite proud of a new wheelchair. Um, and I said, did you get this through the NDIS? And she said, no. Um, I said, well, who'd you get it through? And she said, well, she, she told me I'm too old for the NDIS, so I cannot access it. So... The way that she got her wheelchair, which was a $21,000 wheelchair, was she fundraised um, part of it, and then MS Plus, which is a service provider in the eastern states, provided the funding for the other half, which they'd gone out and fundraised for. So, you know, you have lot, and that, there's lots of scenarios around that. And so uh, the, the cost of this is disease is often silent and uh, hard to capture but what is obvious is people living with the disease are continuing to tell MS Australia we need more support thank you and I, I think Andrew too the uh, um, you know the financial impact on people living with MS is e enormous and I think you found the average the average uh, out-of-pocket costs uh, for services uh, was uh, around nine thousand, eight to $9,000. I assume there's a range too, and for people with um, more severe disability, that escalates enormously. Sure, sure. So, I mean, you know, there are direct costs that people have to pay themselves at out-of-pocket costs, but that was averaging about nine 9000 per person. And there are direct costs to the, the government and community. There are about twenty-five. Thirty thousand per person. Um, there, are, there are costs associated with nursing home care that's six to nine thousand on average per person. Uh, there are informal care costs, so those costs to people, you know, not paid carers, but family and, and uh, friends who, who, for example, have to take time off work to to take their their uh, you know their spouse or their father or their mother or their daughter. To see the doctor or to look after them at home, uh, they you know, they range up to nearly eight thousand per person. These are very significant costs, and of course, we know that uh, people on lower socioeconomic uh, 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 um, status have trouble accessing the NDIS in the first place. So it really poses uh, quite uh, significant burdens on them. Bruce, we'll go to you and turn uh, to EBV. You mentioned uh, EBV. It's one area where the government, where in fact it was the previous government, and uh, uh, under Health Minister Greg Hunt, um, did invest uh, um, a substantial amount, $18 million, for MS EBV research. What What is the promise around EBV? Well, <clears throat> the promise around EBV is that EBV is now known to be an obligate risk factor. You don't get MS if you've not been exposed to EBV. Now, EBV is Epstein-Barr virus. It's the virus that causes glandular fever. And it's ubiquitous. Ninety plus percent, or ninety-five percent of the population has been exposed to this virus. Many people are completely unaware that they've been exposed. They had a childhood viral infection before they were age of two, which is mild. And um, 
we know that if you've had if you haven't had EBV, your risk of DMS is infinitesimally small. If you've had EBV, the timing of the infection is important. If it's early on in life, you still increase your risk of getting uh, um, infection. But if you have it later in life and get a glandular fever, it's, it pushes up your risk of infection by 1.5 to 2-fold. So EBV is an important risk factor, as it's obligate, and you can't get EMS without having EBV. If you prevent people getting EBV, you could potentially prevent EMS. Now, obviously, all this talk about new medications and cures is fantastic, but the ultimate cure is prevention. If you can stop getting the disease, everything else becomes unnecessary. So, so EBV is a really interesting thing. Can you prevent EBV by vaccination? And or can, if you've got if you've got EBV, can you um, reduce the effect of EBV on your immune system to prevent MS developing or progressing? Those are two really important questions. Now, the problem with any vaccination is that vaccinations are not without risk, as we've all heard through COVID, um, that the COVID people do give reactions to um, Epstein-Barr vaccinations. And we don't have an effective EBV vaccine at the moment, but there are vaccines that have been developed. And the question is, who should be vaccinated? Now, the people, um, if we had a universal vaccination program and you know, it was incorporated in the childhood vaccination programs, you know, we need to be sure that the vaccine is the the risks of the vaccine are, are less than the risk of the disease. Because MS, even though we talk about the thirty three thousand people and 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 two point five million people worldwide, MS is still a relatively uncommon disorder. It's not like diabetes or asthma or allergies or cardiovascular disease. It affects one in seven hundred people in Tasmania. Therefore, your risk of getting M your risk of your vaccine has got to be uh, at the community level has got to be better, uh, the, you know, the vaccine has got to be better than the disease, the risk of that vaccine. Similarly, if you looked at people who are at high risk of MS, that is the group who would probably be the most popping vaccinated or being treated for people. And there's a number of research projects which are currently developing or submitted for funding through the, the scheme that Des has mentioned, and these should make a big difference. But the, the problem with this is that to do a trial or, or if some bar virus vaccine or if some bar virus treatment is very expensive. An average drug trial in MS will cost you five hundred million to a billion dollars to do for a pharmaceutical company. We're talking about getting grants of two million dollars, which means you do everything on the absolute you know minimum that you can do to try to answer. And that is, if you want to look at where the potential bang for your buck is in cure, preventing or curing MS. Greater research funding for EBV would be the number one thing I would um, be advocating for. Right. Well, that, that's that's um, you know I come back to this point that I heard someone say that that as we move forward in various areas, whether it's vitamin D and and or, or, or EBV or remyelination, you know, there's not going to be one sim- single silver bullet, but a range of silver bullets that will get us to the, the effectively to a cure or cures over time. Is that your view? Um, I think that you've got to separate between cure and prevention. Now, if you're talking about cure, yeah, I think cure is a really, really, it, there's a, the goal is cure, but cure is a very hard thing for a complex disease. We haven't been able to cure any of these diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, you know, SLE, uh, diabetes. We can't cure them. Because it sets up a, um, or we haven't been able to cure them as yet. So 
cure is hard, but it will be a combination. I have no doubt. We will be looking at reducing EBV. We'll be looking at you know, uh, immune modulation. We'll be looking at bone marrow transplantations. We'll be looking at all of these things together. But um, it will be a complex solution there. As I said, prevention may be an easier, easier can easier um, a barrier to push, and you know, and and that's and and again, as I said, if you have less people getting the disease you will eventually um, remove the disease paradigm from your um, from our community. And that's, you know, we will have people who will still have the disease and we still need to focus on uh, the cure and, and making their lives better. But there are two two sides to this call. Prevention is going to be a very important discussion point at a global summit on Pathways to Cure, which is going to be held in the first week of May. Des, you're leading the MS Australia delegation to this summit. It's going to bring 200 leading uh, um, thinkers and, and particular uh, organisations that fund research. Um, uh, what do you think will come out of this this summit? Uh, some people have said to me that this is potentially uh, a game-changing summit, that, that we're, we're going to align research and develop global collaborations and platforms focusing on critical issues and they, to get consensus on those critical issues. Do you think we can look to this this uh, important summit as, as a real milestone in the history of, of research and uh, advances into uh, uh, um, you know putting MS where we want to put it behind us. I I think it's it's an incredibly exciting opportunity. Um, I think over the last couple of years, MS Australia has done really well in uh, its collaboration um, with, with the UK, with Canada, uh, and with the US. But this summit will bring people from all around the world, researchers uh, in particular, um, sharing their knowledge. So the outcome, I think, is we will end up with a global collaboration uh, that sets up a range of platforms. Um, Bruce has, has mentioned a couple. You know, there's the EBV um, research platform. Uh, there's platypus and octopus, and um, which, uh, you know, we really want to, participate in, which is, you know, the repurposing of uh, of drugs. And um, we've asked government to assist us in rolling out that uh, research here. So I think the, the opportunity is limitless. Um, and I think the enthusiasm uh, will be evident. And we'll roll, we will come away with a, a very clear strategy uh, of where, you know, um, each party plays in you know, a global uh, effort to, as you say, put MS behind us. Thank you very much, Associate Professor Des Graham. Thank you too for joining us and for a, a superb and really important report, uh, Professor Palmer and also Professor Taylor. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on The Raw Nerve. Thanks for listening to The Raw Nerve, the official podcast of MS Australia. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast today at msaustralia.org.au forward slash podcast.